We're going to two verses or two texts today. One is found in John chapter 4. The other one is found in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in John chapter 4, verse 1. The scripture says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed, underline the word needed or take note of it, needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came down to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me the drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, you got to picture this with attitude now. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritan womans. And matter of fact, the way I picture her, anybody ever remember Carla from Cheers? That's this woman right here. She's giving Jesus the business right now. Right? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to do to draw water with. The well is deep. When then are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered her and said, Whoever drinks of the water that, that, I give, that, that you're talking about will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And then our second text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Today we are jumping into a brand new series called Answers, Biblical Answers for a Broken Nation. And I want to minister to you on one of the subjects that is dividing our land and dividing our nation and causing it to be broken as the subject of racism. And I want to talk to you about how to bring about racial reconciliation. And I'm using these two uh, texts. The first one will be self-evident in just a moment. But the second one I went to, I was led to because of the phrase, the ministry of reconciliation. And I understand fully that that primarily refers to our charge from heaven to go into all the world and be a bridge to those that are far from God to help them to be reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the ministry of reconciliation. It is our charge. Every single one of us have that as part of our great commission. But today with permission from the Lord, I want to use that phrase as a launching place for my title because my title this morning is simply this, Reconciliation is my thing. Reconciliation is not your mama's thing. It's not your sister's thing. It's not your brother's thing. It's not a government thing. It's not a political thing. Reconciliation as a Christian, you should say, it's my thing. I have been charged by the Lord. I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so I want us to take that to heart today. I want us to realize that in order for us to truly fulfill the Great Commission, we must be ministers of reconciliation. The Bible says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, ethnos, ethnic group. That means every kindred, tribe, race, tongue, people. In order for us to truly do our job, we have to be vehicles and ministers of reconciliation and not ministers of division. And so it's with that heart that we come to God's word today and we find out what it has to say about how to bring about racial reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace? Would you bring life to this word and minister truth to our hearts, transform our minds 
so that we can truly be everything that you've destined us to be. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. As you're being seated, tell somebody, reconciliation is my thing. It's my thing. It's not my mama's, not my sister's, not my brother's. It's my thing. Biblical answers for a broken nation. Our nation is broken. Yes, there are good things happening in our nation. Yes, unemployment rate is down, and yes, the economy is surging, and the stock market may be at an all-time high, but that doesn't mean our nation is not broken. We are fighting one another. We are turning on one another. We are tuning one another out. We are demonizing one another. We are talking past one another, and we are fighting not against a common enemy, but against each other. And Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. We are divided in our nation, in our cities, divided in our homes, divided in our houses of worship. The enemy is working overtime to divide and conquer. He knows he cannot conquer us as we stand united because united we stand and divided we fall. But we are fighting. We are fighting a political or over political agendas. We are fighting over civic and social positions and points of view. We are fighting over matters of faith and justice. We are fighting and we are divided and in desperate need of answers. And can I submit for your approval today that the answers are not found in a political agenda. You will not find the answers in the Republican Party. You will not find the answers in the Democratic Party. You will not find the answers in the Independent or Socialist Party. The answers are not found in a political platform. The answers are found in the almighty, uh, unalterable, authentic word of almighty God. Jesus has the answers for us. We need to realize what the disciples realized. Where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We have to be humble enough. To submit our agendas and our perspectives to the word of God and say, God, what are the answers? Because God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I'll hear from heaven and hear their land. God has got the answers and we need to go to God for these answers. People want to know sometimes, well, should we be talking about a subject like racism in church? And I think our text tells us emphatically we should. In our text, we find it begins in verse number 3 by saying that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But notice this, but he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to. And and a better word from this is he was compelled to. Uh, Literally from the original Greek, it, it describes being on assignment from God. Jesus has, has an urgency. There is a, there is a drawing. There is something that he can't avoid. I, I know that I, I just need to go through Samaria. And the reason why this is powerful is because in, in, in Jesus' time, Jesus, Jews would not go through Samaria. They wouldn't do it because Jews hated Samaritans. And many times I've taught in the past exclusively that the reason why Jesus had to go through Samaria is because there was a broken woman that would be at a well that Jesus needed to meet and heal. And the truth of the matter is there was a broken woman at the well. We know her story well. She was broken because of bad relationships. One bad relationship after another bad relationships. By the way, if you have bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship, you will find that you will be broken. There's hope. You can be restored again. But relationships are one of the number one ways that we become broken and fractured in life. And she's had five bad relationships, five failed marriages, and now she has a living boyfriend. And so she is broken 
in every way and she's hurting and she's filled with pain and she goes to a place called Jacob's Well in the city of Saqqar and she goes there at noontime because she figures nobody else is going to be there because she's done. She's done with the innuendo. She's done with the raised eyebrows. She doesn't want anybody peering at her or looking down at her anymore. So she figures she'll slip in there in the noonday heat, get her water and leave. But Jesus was there waiting for her. She didn't understand. She didn't even know at that particular day that she thought she had an appointment with nobody. She was on God's agenda. And I don't know who I'm encouraging right now, but I want you to know that even though you might feel bottled up and broken and frustrated and fearful and all sorts of issues going on on the inside and that God may have forgotten about you, you are on God's agenda. Whether you like it or not, God cares about you that much. And God feels a compulsion to come and meet with you, to heal you and to relieve you of the pain that you're going through. What I love about Jesus is he got there before her. Did you ever notice that? Got there before her and yet he didn't leave. He waited. Aren't you glad that God waits on us? Sometimes we think God books on us. When we're not on God's time, God leaves. That when, when we don't do it God's way, God leaves. That when our life is caught in a cycle of sin that God just forgets about us, that God just, you know, breaks time. When we, when we don't want to give up what God is asking us to give us, when we, when we get caught in, in the things that we get entrapped with in life, that God just books on us. But, but I'm here to tell you that the God of the universe loves you so much that God will wait upon you. And I know that the scripture says they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. But the fact of the matter is that God waits on us. He loves us that much. He's waiting for you to come home. He's waiting for you to get closer. He's waiting for you to go all in. He's waiting to participate more in your life. And God will wait because that's what lovers do. They wait until the person fully commits. So Jesus is waiting there. And I've always taught, I said Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to heal that woman. And I don't negate that fact. But I believe that the issue was deeper than that. I believe that there was an assignment on the inside of Jesus to go through Samaria, not just to heal a woman, but to deal with an issue that kept raising its ugly head in Jesus' time, just like it is in our time. And that issue was an issue of racism. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So much so that even though Jesus was on his way from Judea, from Judea to Galilee, and the easiest way to get there would have been to go through Samaria, every Jew would avoid Samaria. They would walk around even though it would waste time. They wouldn't step foot on Samaritan soil because they hated one another. They hated one another so much they believed that Jews believed about the Samaritans, that they were half-breeds, that they were, they were, they were de- demon-possessed. They hated one another even though they believed in the same God and came from very much the same lineage. Isn't that amazing how people can hate one another because they look different even though they come from the same lineage and believe in the same God? Sounds a little bit like us, doesn't it? This hate between the Jews and the Samaritans was 750 years old. They came from the same God, same lineage, believed in the same God, but yet hated one another. Did you know that we all come from the same lineage? If you're in this church, it's probably because you believe in the same God. We all come from Adam and Eve, and then if you fast forward, Noah and his wife. And you remember the story of Noah. Noah had three sons, right? Three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Do you know those names are very significant, right? Those names describe the color of their skin. Ham means hot or black. 
And, and, and Shem means dusty or brown. And Japheth means light-skinned or fair. And they were named after their color. All of the colors that we see came from the same lineage. And what's interesting is that in order for those colors to come out of Noah and his wife, and then going back to Adam and Eve uh, in, in the garden, it means, sorry to rock your world, Adam and Eve weren't blonde hair, blue eye, frolicking in the garden naked. Adam and Eve more than likely were brown. If they had to lean anyway, they would lean brown more towards black because of the area that they lived in, the Garden of Eden, which is modern-day Iraq. But they were probably brown. Noah and his wife were more than likely brown. And all of us came from this same DNA. We believe in this God we call Jesus, God Jehovah, God the one that saved us. And yet there's hate because of the way we look. You know what that is? It's what I call redonkulous. It's ridiculous to the next level, right? It, it, it takes it to a completely different place. We all come from the same lineage. And so Jesus recognizes this. He recognizes that the Jews and the Samaritans all come from the same lineage. They both refer to Jacob as their father and they are hating one another. And Jesus is alive where there's hate in his land. And Jesus said, I cannot stand by and do nothing. I cannot put my head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. I am compelled to go to Samaria. Compelled to go not just to heal, but to deal with this issue of racism. If Jesus felt compelled to deal with it, can I ask us to feel a compulsion to be ministers of reconciliation? Can I ask us to look at it as not somebody else's thing, not my, my brother's thing, not my sister's thing, not my father's thing or my mother's thing, but, but my thing. We are ministers who have been compelled and given the charge of reconciliation. By the way, how else will they know that we are his disciples except we love one another? You cannot preach an effective gospel with hate in your heart. How can our message be received if we don't love? Reconciliation is a must go. It's a, it's a must heal. It's a must deal. We, we need to feel compelled. We need to see it as an assignment from God. It's got to be our thing. And for too long, the church has been silent the church has done by and done nothing, and I'm going to qualify this in just a minute. For too long, the white church, the white evangelical believing church has been an instrument of racism and division. Now, I know that shocks some of you, but I'm going to give you a history lesson in just a moment because when we don't know history, we are doomed to repeat history. So hold on for a minute. I am a fellow white person, and so this is not a white bashing message. Although I did find out that I had 3% African in me. I knew I had some in me. I just knew it. I knew I had some. Some of y'all knew it too, right? Somebody came in one time. I think it was you, Petta. Petta came looking for me one time. She, somebody dropped off a CD of one of the messages I preached in the mall bathroom. And Petta picked it up. She listened to it. She comes showing up at the church. She walks right up to me. She said, can you show me where Pastor Frank is? I said, I am Pastor Frank. She said, nah, he's a black man. Anyway, God wants us to realize that we are called to minister to all. God never had this idea of race 
God loves diversity, but he only intended for one race, the human race. For God so loved the world. That's the whole human race. He loves diversity. In other words, when we talk about rec- racial reconciliation, we are not talking about losing our identity. We are not lo- talking about losing our distinctiveness. You know, God doesn't want us to, to lose the variety. He's the one who created the variety. And what happens is the variety runs all to its separate corners. And as a result of that, we miss the combined explosion of all of the gifts and talents that God God has put in each and every unique part and uh, group, people group. And when the church finally comes together and we experience the full of all the gifts that have been placed in, that's when we experience the explosion and the revival that God really wants to happen. We're trying to do it separate instead of uh, together. And so um, I want to minister to you on this subject of racial reconciliation. And I I want to begin, though, um, by giving you a little bit of of history, my history, specifically my experience, um, racial sensitivity, and the the, the acknowledgement and, and and noticing of racial injustice and racism has has been with me ever since I'm a little boy. Uh, in the third grade, I was enrolled by my parents in what was called an IGC program. It stands for Intellectually Gifted Children. That's me. And because I was in the IGC program, I could not go to school in my neighborhood school, which was a predominantly white neighborhood. I had to go to a school in a very racially mixed neighborhood, to a school where white people were the minority. And in the third and fourth grade, I noticed something. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it began to cause questions to be asked. Here was a school where white people were the minority, but yet in my class for intellectually gifted children, there was one black student and one Spanish student. And I asked myself, as a third and fourth grader, why? Why? I remember the black student and the brown student. The black student and the Spanish student, just like it was yesterday, because they were my best friends in the class, Richie Owens and Marcus. And they weren't just friends at school. We hung out at each other's house. We did sleepovers together. We're going to talk about why that's important in just a minute. So we, we hung out the whole time together. But I, kept, I was asking the question, why in a school where white people are the minority, only one black student, one brown student in an intellectually gifted class? Why? Fast forward to high school. In high school, I was in a medical science learning center. That was another form of IGC program. I was smart when I was young. I was smart when I was high school. I'm even smarter now. (laughs) I wanted to be a brain surgeon. Only reason why I wanted to be a brain surgeon is because I asked myself the question, who makes the most money? (laughs) When I said brain surgeon, I said, that's for me right there. Then I found out I don't like blood and I don't like seeing people's body parts. You know, people are nasty, ain't they? People are nasty. I don't want to have nothing to do with that. So I, I stayed in there for high school. And, uh, but when I was in high school, I was in this medical science learning center. And again, in a high school, because of the specialized program that wasn't in my hometown, but a high school that was very racially mixed. Very racially. I would say it was an equal amount of white students to black and brown students. And in my class for uh, science, my medical science class, zero black and brown kids. I asked myself the question, why? Why? I mean, outside of my class, there was a whole bunch of black and brown kids in the school. So could it be that, that 
one group is not as smart as the other group? And I was like, nah, that can't be. Got to be something that has been baked in to this educational system that is causing such a cap or on a certain group of people. And so I began to ask that question. I got to college. And I went to Rutgers University. Rutgers University, all their sports teams stink, don't they? Can't stand that. I mean, I, come on, I'll give me something to root for. Not like the Cowboys. I'm in it every year. I love the Cowboys. Anyway, I went to Rutgers University. I went to, to the School of Business there. And the School of Business was on the Livingston campus because by that time, I decided I wasn't going to be a brain surgeon. I was going to be a CPA attorney. And so I, I went to business school. And um, this was, again, Rutgers is an extremely racially diversified university. And uh, I did a thesis in my sophomore year. The thesis was, why aren't there more black executives in corporate America? That was my thesis. So it's always been something that I've noticed. I've always seen. And um, I've always asked questions about it. Why, why, why? And maybe you've asked some questions as well. Like, why is Sunday morning, obviously not in this church, which I'm very proud of. Why is Sunday morning still one of the most segregated hours in America? Why do most black Christians vote Democratic? And why do most white Christians vote Republican? Oh, that's a question, ain't it? Have you asked yourself that question? Reading the same Bible? Believing in the same God? Why? 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 I've always asked these questions. I've always asked, why do we have this when we're both using the same source? And then you begin to to surmise and rule things out. Is it because one group is bad and one group, group is good? No. Is it because one group is holy and one group is not? No. Is it because one group is smart and one group is not? No. What is going on? And that's what we're going to tackle in this series. And of course, when I say about church, I'm so proud of this church because this church is nothing like that. This church is where everybody kind of worships together. And we are so eclectic and so diverse. I love it. And matter of fact... When you take all of our campuses and you put them together, we, we kind of almost have like an even spread. And that's intentional, by the way. We try. Because I figured like this, that if we're, un- by the way, did you know that by 2042, I think, it's predicted that white people will be in the minority in America if the population continues to grow the way it is. That, that's what I think I read. I might be off on the, on the year. But I thought to myself, man, you better sow some good seeds right now. <laughs> Hello? Right, and, and when we get to heaven, here's the thing. Did you know that on the planet, did you know that white-skinned people are in the majority, m- minority on the planet? That brown is the, is, the, is the most populous skin color on the planet. And here's what I figured out. I figured out that when we get to heaven, according to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, around the throne of God, there's going to be a great multitude of people, which no man can number for every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue. And if white people's skin color are in the minority on the earth now, and we're uncomfortable, Comfortable mixing with people of color. When we get to heaven, you're going to feel real uncomfortable. <laughs> so I determined a long time ago that for our church, we are going to be a little picture of heaven on earth because that's what God wants. Amen. <laughs> but I asked a question. And in and, and asking that question, that's the heart that I bring um, these, these points from the scripture on how do we reconcile racially. And the first thing we see in our text is, number one, in order to, re- uh, to make reconciliation our thing, we need to, want, number one, make it personal, not political. 
For those of you who are pining for a political message, you're not getting one. This is not a political message for me. This is personal. The truth of the matter is, if we're all honest, right? We need to be honest. That, that politics are using racism in a way to prostitute us for our votes. Fact. Politicians cannot bring, a, cannot bring people together for the most part because they are forced to push people to one side or the other. And so the longer we keep this thing called racism in the political realm and we don't remove it from there and make it personal, the longer we will stay divided. But if we make it personal, we stand a wonderful chance of coming together and then making policies that are for everybody in our land. It's got to start off on a personal level. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's got to be relational. I mean that you have to move outside of your circle and reach for relationships outside of your comfort zone. Jesus says, we got to go to Samaria. I would have paid to see the disciples' face. He said, us Jewish boys are going into the hood of the Samaritans. I would have paid to see it on their face. Their, their mouth dropped. They were like, they probably talk, talking amongst themselves. He's crazy. Somebody got to talk. Peter, you're always talking up. Go, go talk to him about this. Tell me, crazy. We cannot go into the Samaritan cities. Them people are half-breeds. They are the scum of the earth. They are the lowest of the low. We're not supposed to step foot on their store. We cannot do it. Jesus said, we're going. I'm compelled. I got to obey my father. I, I, I got to go. And he said, and when I go there, I'm not going there just to walk through the city. I'm going there to enter into relationship with a woman who's going to unlock relationship with everybody else in the city. He said, I'm going there to have a conversation with somebody that my people say I shouldn't talk to. I'm going there to sit down and wait for somebody who is hurting to find out why they're hurting and why they feel ostracized and why they feel marginalized. I'm going there to commune with because in Bible days, the closest kind of communion that you could have was to eat and drink with somebody. And so remember what Carla said to Jesus? She said, how is it that you being a Jew are asking a drink of me? Besides that, you ain't got no cup. How are you going to get this water? Jesus said, I'm going to put my Jewish lips on your Samaritan cup, and that's how I'm going to drink. What was he saying? I'm going to enter into relationship with you. And when I enter into relationship with you, that is going to be the key to unlocking this thing called reconciliation. What was Jesus doing? He was putting a face on race. Let me say it again. He was putting a face on race. I want to challenge you, church. Make it personal. Who do you love that has a different skin color than you? Who do you have over your home that has a different skin color than you? Who do you pray with that has a different skin color than you? Segregation may have legally come to an end when Jim Crow laws were passed and the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, repealing the Jim Crow laws, but they are still alive and well. But are they still alive and well in your homes, in your relationships, and in your places of business? See, you don't need it to be legislated if it's in your heart. There are some people that continue segregation up until today in their heart. It's time to move it out of the political realm. 
It's time to make it personal, to put a face on race. And when we do, we will realize that we are a lot more alike than we are different. Maya Angelou said this. She said, we can learn to see each other and see ourselves in each other and recognize that human beings are more alike than they are unalike. And this was proven to be scientific fact in the famous Human Genome Project where it discovered that at a genetic level, every human being on the planet is 99.9% alike. 99.9% alike. We're going to fuss at one another. We're going to hate because of point one. You know what that is? Redonkulous. Jesus said, I've got to put a face on this. I've got to go to Samaria. I've got to meet a woman who my people say I shouldn't even talk to. I've got to drink from her cup and talk to her about life. I've got to take time to show her that I care about what's hurting her. I've got to do it at the expense of my people feeling a certain kind of way about me. I've got to do it at the expense of being called names. I've got to do it at the expense of losing some friends. I've got to do it at the expense of people talking about me. Church, I want to challenge you. Take racism out of the political arena. Put it in. The personal arena. It's the first step to reconciliation. Number two, I'm going deeper. Number two, if we are going to heal racism, if reconciliation is going to be my thing, we need to be intentional about getting a new perspective. What do I mean? We're all victims of our own perspective. Facts. Our perspectives are shaped by so many individual experiences. Our upbringing, our families, our parents, our education, our surroundings, our society, what we've been exposed to, what has happened to us all. Perspective is the way that we see it. Never assume your perspective is correct. It's the way we see it. It's been shaped by so much. And the way we see it determines the way we respond and react to it. Rifts between people happen when they refuse to see it from the other perspective. You cannot have reconciliation unless there is an intentionality about stepping in the shoes of the other person. Husbands and wives who have had rifts that cannot be settled. You know why? One or both refuse to step into the shoes of the other person and look at it from their perspective. We have to be intentional about getting a different perspective. Look at this detail about the power of perspective in our story. Verse number 7 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Interesting, Jesus gets to Samaria... Here's what he says. Listen to it in terms of the culture and what's happening. He says to his Jewish disciples to go to a quick trip in the city of Sakar, owned by Samaritans and buy some groceries. And there is no other Jews in the city. Now, you know why that doesn't kind of register with you? Unless you're probably black or brown. Because as a white person, we have rarely ever gone into a store and felt some kind of way because people were staring at us. Interestingly enough, as I was talking about this detail in this story and sharing my heart with some of my friends, and I say this for context only, I was talking to one of my black friends. And why do I qualify by saying I say this for context only? Because have you ever noticed that when white people talk about their friends, they don't say my white friend. But whenever they have a black friend, they say, my black friend. 
They want to, I got a black friend. I got a black friend. I got a black I'm not racist. I'm not racist. What, what is the point of drawing attention to somebody's color unless there's context for it? Unless, there, unless there's a reason for it. There's a reason for me saying this. I was talking to my black, my black friend. And uh, he said, I can't believe you're going to talk about that in church. He's a pastor also. He said, because my wife and I just came back from vacation. And while we were on vacation, we went shopping in a Louis Vuitton store. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Every black and brown person is going, I know exactly what's coming right now. So I walked in there. And he said, the salespeople, they weren't doing anything. Nobody said hello. Nobody said, can I help you? All they did was look. As if to say, what you doing in a Louis Vuitton store? You know you can't afford these bags. That's what, that's what they felt. As if to say, we better keep our eye on you because you might steal one of those bags. And he said, everything in me wanted to just shout out and say, my wife owns five of these already. He said, but you can't say that because every time you do, it's like you're a mad black person if you say that. He said, I can't believe you're going to talk about this. I said, yeah, I'm going to talk about this. I said, because Jesus, why did he send his disciples, his Jewish disciples, into a Samaritan quick trip to buy groceries? Because he wanted to give them a perspective. The only way you can get a perspective is if you walk in somebody else's shoes. Otherwise, you cannot get a perspective. And he sends them there so that when they come back and they see him talking to this Samaritan woman, they are not completely shocked. They're still going to be shocked because just before you have, just because you have a little experience doesn't mean that you have a full perspective. But he wanted to at least kind of put something in them so that when they came back and saw him talking to the Samaritan woman, that their racism wouldn't kick in and ruin the whole thing because she was the one Jesus chose to heal racism in the entire land. Remember, she was the one that left her water pot after a conversation with Jesus. She went back into our town and she said, come see a Jewish Jesus who told me everything that I've ever done. And all of the Samaritans who hated the Jews came out to see a Jewish Jesus, asked him to stay in their town for many more days. The whole town gave themselves to a Jewish Jesus because Jesus selected a woman to be part of the reconciliation between God and man. Jesus wants us to have a perspective. So um, I want to give you a perspective. I want to give you a perspective by walking you through some really quick lowlights of history. I can't, I can't go in deep because I don't have time, but let me give you a few. Slavery lasted about 100 years legally. Segregation about almost 200 from the inception of our nation, 1776, right up until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which abolished the Jim Crow laws. For those of you who don't know, because I assume there are some that don't, Jim Crow laws were the laws that were in the land after it was illegal to have a slave that still made it legal to separate or keep black people out of certain institutions and places, restaurants, churches, um, 
sit on the back of the bus, all that kind of stuff. Okay, 188 years to be official since the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. During that time, black people up until that time were considered three-fifths of a white person. They were stripped from their families, from their mothers, from their fathers, from their parents, from their kids, parents from their kids, kids from their parents. Women were raped by white male plantation owners, by their sons, by their brothers, and by other male acquaintances. Black people were branded with branding irons, brutally whipped many daily, had salt and pepper rubbed into their wounds, some even subjected to mutilation, amputation, genitalia torture, and castration. But beyond those atrocities, black people were fed an inferiority myth during that whole time, that they were inferior to white people and that white people were superior to black people. How so? By every major institution where we all derive our worth from. Our worth is the composite of all of the things that affect our life. They were fed this inferiority myth by the legal system and the governmental system, which said for the first hundred years of our nation about that it was legal to own a slave and treat them in the way that I just described. They were told by our legal system that you are three-fifths of a white person. They were told by our legal system you cannot vote. Same thing, by the way, for women. They were fed this inferiority myth by our education system, which black people were not allowed to participate in. And when they were, it was inferior in every way. By the educational system that had intentionally stripped out all the major accomplishments of the early black heroes of our democracy. I'll prove it to you. How many has heard of Paul Revere? Can I see your hand? Paul Revere. Come on, don't be, raise, it, raise it high. Be, be loud, be proud. Almost everybody. If you haven't heard of Paul Revere, I don't know what's going on. The Midnight Ride. The British are coming. Now watch this. How many of you have heard of Wentworth Cheswell? Raise your hand. Aha. Look at that. Virtually everyone heard of Paul Revere. Virtually no one heard of Wentworth Cheswell. Well, he was the hero of our early democracy that ruled north when Paul Revere ruled west. He did the same exact thing that Paul Revere did. The British are coming, the British are coming, except he was black and Paul Revere was white. So he doesn't go into history books and Paul Revere does. Intentionally, by the way. Have you heard of George Washington? Come on, if you you, you haven't heard of George Washington. (laughs) George Washington, we celebrate him, right? The capture of British General Charles Cornwallis and the victory at Yorktown. But nobody, watch this, how many's heard of James Armistead? James Armistead. Look at that again. James Armistead. He was a black man who had great personal risk, posed as a runaway slave, and pretended to be a British spy, all while gathering the confidence of General Benedict Arnold and General Cornwallis so that he could provide Washington with the inside information necessary to pull off the defeat and bring about a swift end to the war. If there was no James Armistead, there would be no George Washington. But you ain't never heard of him. And the reason why is because intentionally, 
stripped out of the history books in order to propitiate, to promulgate an inferiority myth. Black people were also fed the inferiority myth by science. Anybody ever hear of the origin of the species? Anybody here ever hear of Darwin's theory of evolution? You know what that taught, right? It taught that man evolved from the ape in stages. The first stage of evolution in the origin of the species was the negroid. In other words, from a scientific point of view, this was taught, black people are the lowest evolved. They are closest to the ape. White people, of course, furthest from the ape. What is the teaching? Inferiority myth. That you are not as smart. You are not as, as, as fearfully and wonderfully made. See, this is the reason why even as Christians, we ought to know some of these things so that we can stand up and say, you know what? God created all people. Adam and Eve, and by the way, they were brown. And here's what breaks my heart. The institution that was most responsible for the racial divide was the church. The white evangelical church. They taught black people that it was the will of God for them to be slaves. That slavery was not instituted by man, but rather it was the result of a curse that God put on black people. It was known as the curse of Ham theology. Anybody ever heard of the curse of Ham theology? Look at this. Only black people usually. Few white people. Curse of Ham theology was this. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham walked in on his father Noah when Noah got drunk and naked. I know we don't like to think of Noah as getting drunk and naked because he's a hero of the faith. He got drunk and naked. And I just want to encourage you, don't get drunk because if you get drunk, you might get naked. And when you're drunk and naked, you might do things that you're going to regret later. That's why you should get drunk or naked. Unless it's your wife. Then you should get naked. Isn't that funny? People get naked when they're young. When they're old, they don't like to be naked in front of another. another. They're like, no, 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 no. Keep the lights off. No, come on. Anyway. <laughs> Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham walked in on his father Noah when he was drunk and naked. So God pronounced a curse on one of Ham's four children. The child's name was Canaan. And he pronounced a curse, and the curse was that Canaan would be a slave. Okay? And so what early theologians taught that it bred its way into the white evangelical church was that the curse of Ham, pronounced by God, was placed not just on Canaan, but on all black people forever. Because Ham was black. Canaan, therefore, black. All of his offspring, black. As a result of that, it was this curse of slavery. Failed to tell... Everybody, that it was just one of Ham's four sons, that the curse that was pronounced on Canaan was limited to three at most four generations, and that from the line of Ham came many of the church heroes that you and I celebrate and love. For instance, anybody ever hear of Caleb, as in Caleb and Joshua? Anybody ever hear of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law? Right? By the way, you all know Moses married an Ethiopian woman. Dark-skinned. 
Y'all remember that Miriam, sister of Moses, had a problem with that. She spoke up against it. God struck her with leprosy for giving Moses the business about interracial marriage. Come on, man. It's a joke. It's a joke. And so failed to tell us about all of the people that came out of the line of him. Caleb, Jethro, father-in-law of Moses, who gave Moses that wonderful advice that enabled, positioned Moses to be the deliverer of Israel that he was. Anybody ever hear of Rahab, the great, great grandmother of David? Anybody ever hear of Ruth, the great, uh, the grandmother of David? Anybody ever hear of David? All came from the line of Ham that supposedly was cursed to be slaves for the rest of their existence. And if you've heard of David, I know you've heard of Jesus, who came from the lineage of David, who came from the lineage of Ham. That means that Jesus had black blood in him. That should be a mic drop right there. What's... God's saying there is no inferiority myth. It's, it's not true. Matter of fact, the, 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 the whole lineage of the whole race of people that was told that they are cursed to be slaves were actually hand-selected by God to be the vehicle through which freedom comes to the world. Because Jesus came. And what did Jesus say? Jesus came. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty the oppressed, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus, who came from the lineage of hand, came for freedom. Freedom. Amazing. Amazing. By the way, you know what I just quoted? Luke 4, 19. I just quoted one of the most poignant verses in the Bible on social justice. Look how quiet it gets. I'm going to do a whole, a whole teaching in this series on, on justice. We, we better know something about justice. Because that's what one of the things that Jesus came for. He stood up for the overlooked, marginalized, underprivileged. That was Jesus' ministry. And so for all this time, the church they had crazy theology. They would even teach that if you baptize the slave, it didn't change their status. You know why? So that they can share the gospel, if you call that the gospel, if you strip out this kind of stuff. So they can share the gospel with slaves without worrying about it changing them from being slaves. And so, for instance, any man who be in Christ is a new creature, old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Didn't apply to the slaves. You become an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Didn't apply to the slaves because they had this crazy theology that we could baptize you, but it doesn't change. You still have to be a slave. And so what happened over time was the Bible became known as the white man's religion that was used, I know this is strong, but this is facts, to keep black people on the plantation. And that's why you had the emergence of black evangelical churches because they weren't welcomed in white churches. 
Up until the 1970s, did you know that if you were a black young man or woman or old man or woman who wanted to pursue a theological degree, you are not allowed in the seminaries across the United States? Up until the 1970s. The church was one of the greatest systems that kept racism going in our land and it continues to be if it refuses to acknowledge and refuses to change what has happened for the better part of American history. We have to. Here's a serious question. I just gave you some of the little things. If something happens for 200 years and is baked into all of the systems in our society. And people who are in charge of those systems grew up, are still alive from then. Can you reverse all of that in only less than 50 years? Come on, give an honest answer. You know you can. It's impossible. Take a woman who's been in an abusive relationship for 30 years. Suddenly she gets out of that abusive relationship. You meet her six months or a year later. And you expect there to be no scars? You're joking yourself. Thank God that we are victors in Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about not having a victimized mentality, right? Because Jesus makes all the difference in the world. And, and I, but it's harder for people who have been victimized to get the victory because the system is rigged against them. But we're going to talk about that. The church, the church, has progress been made? Absolutely. Have we still have miles to go? Yes, we do. What's my point, though? For racial reconciliation to happen, there must be an intentionality on the part of white people to step in the shoes of those that have been wronged, see it from their perspective, because unless we do, there cannot be reconciliation. Looking at the other perspective is required of reconciliation. Number three, and I'm going to give these to you quick because I know I'm going a little long. I told you I had 50 pages of notes. <laughs> Number three, in order for there to be racial reconciliation, for reconciliation to be my thing, we must take the posture of ownership. What do I mean by this? Oftentimes you'll hear white people say, well, I don't understand why I have to pay for the mistakes of my forefathers. It's a crazy question, right? Why do black people have to pay for those mistakes? Why do, I didn't do nothing wrong. Why do I have to say I'm sorry? I didn't do nothing wrong. It wasn't me. And, and truth is, it wasn't, right? Many of us who are from my generation, younger than me, innocent of the atrocities. Didn't do anything wrong. You're generally a good person, not a racist. Try to treat all people equally, as good as we can, based on the systems that we have grown up in, right? Not our fault. But here, check this out. Reconciliation requires that someone, listen carefully, spiritual principle, stands in the gap and bears the responsibility for the sake of reconciliation, even if they are innocent of wrongdoing. This is deep. I told you I was a smarty pants. <laughs> reconciliation requires that somebody stands in the gap as a representative of the wrong that was done, even if they are innocent of any wrongdoing. I'll give you a perfect example that nobody can argue with. It's, it's, it's two words, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus do anything wrong? 
What did Jesus do? Jesus was innocent. The eyes of omniscience searched him inside and out and found no sin of commission or omission in Jesus. But yet Jesus still said, I'll stand in the gap. I'll take the pain on me for the sake of reconciling these people because I love them so much. Somebody has got to be willing to take the posture of ownership. Jesus did. Thank God he did. And I want to call all my white brothers and sisters to take this posture. What does that mean? It means acknowledge it. Recognize that it's, it, it has gone on, still baked into the system. And watch this. I want to, on behalf of all my ancestors, as a representative man, ask for forgiveness from all my black and brown brothers and sisters for the atrocities that have happened to you and that have been baked into our society that you still deal with the remnants of. And I'm asking you, as a representative man, to take the posture of forgiveness. If that ever happens in our land, watch out. Reconciliation is on the way. The last thing I want to share with you today, for reconciliation to be my thing, for it to happen between the races, We need to preach with our actions. Words are great, right? We're going to talk about the power of words, by the way, in this series. Biblical answers for a broken nation because everybody thinks it's okay to say whatever they want. Everybody. I'm not naming no names or nothing like that. But everybody thinks that they can say whatever they want. There's nothing wrong with that. As Christians, we ought to know better because the Bible says to try not... If you're a leader, never never offend with this. It's easier to offend with this when you're a leader. So we got to watch our words even more carefully. And if we're representatives of Jesus Christ, we got to watch this. A little kind of teaser for later on in the series. Got to preach with our actions. Words are good. You need to start with acknowledgement. I'm sorry. I was wrong, right? If you if cheated on your wife, that's where it begins, right? You can't go to your wife and go, ha. Oh, I just want you to know, uh, I cheated. What's the big deal? But you need to forgive me. Or, ready for this? She knows it happened. You know it happened, but you won't admit it happened. That's a good example right there. She knows it happened. You know it happened, but you won't admit it happened, but yet you want her to forgive you. She caught you point blank. You're like, oh, no, you didn't see that. That That wasn't me, somebody else. You need to acknowledge it, and you need to ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry. I broke our covenant. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. I sinned against our family. I sinned against our reputation. I sinned against my children. I sinned, and I need your forgiveness, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to prove myself to you again. It starts with words. She comes to forgive you. One year later, you do the same exact thing. You just negated all your words. We need to preach with our actions. I'm going to give you a couple practical ways to preach with your actions. Number one, don't stay silent in the face of racism. Acknowledge it. Speak to it. Number two, learn. Take time to study what has happened. I give you a couple of examples, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, that showed the ignorance of most people. When I asked, do you know this person? Do you know that person? 
because we, we haven't been taught it, so we have to take time to study in order to get the right perspective. And, you know, people want to know, well, why do we have to have Black History Month? Because we get white history all throughout school. Learn, take time to study. Watch this, number three. Be willing to learn from all. What I find amazing to me is how black people, as is evidenced by our congregation, are willing to go to a church with a white pastor. Although he is 3% African. (laughs) But what I find amazing is that white people very rarely will go to a church where there's a black pastor. And do you know why? Because to many white people, black preachers are for entertainment. Instead of teaching. Instead of realizing that, that they can deposit. You know what? If I told you where half the stuff, 90% of the stuff that you currently hear comes from. Get ready, get ready, get ready. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's true though. Be willing to learn. Learn from anybody. Anybody ever hear of a person by the name of Augustine? Anybody ever hear of a person by the name of Athenaeus? Athenaeus, I think it's pronounced. The Bishop of Alexandria. Tertullian. These are some of the early church fathers that gave us many of the doctrines that we have today. They were all black. Do you know that if they lived in the 1940s, they wouldn't have been allowed in a lot of white churches. Had to sit on the back of the bus and certainly couldn't get into seminary. We need to be willing to learn from everybody, realizing that God has deposited rich resources in all of us. Number four, diversify your circle. Seek out relationships outside of your skin color and ethnicity as friends on your job. If you're a boss or a leader, it is your job to make sure that your environment looks like heaven. That doesn't mean pick people who are less than other people. Because that assumes that certain people are less than other people. It means pick equally smart white people, black people, brown people, women, men, so on. Diversify. It's your job to do it. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Number five, diversify your family. This is where the rubber meets the road. Are you okay if you're 21, 22, 25-year-old son or daughter? comes home from college to introduce you to their boyfriend or girlfriend who you've never met and they walk in and they're a different skin color than you? Are you okay? Diversify your family. I already gave you one example. Moses married the Ethiopian. By the way, you know Solomon was black, and when the Bible describes Solomon, it said he was more beautiful than 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 I think it says tens of thousands. Interesting that those kind of details are in the Bible. Are we okay with that? Because it's okay with God. God is not opposed to interracial marriage; He is opposed to interfaith marriage. Because our relationship with God that makes all the difference in the world. I was kidding with my wife about this. I said, honey, if something ever happens to you, I'm marrying a sister next time. She said, don't say that in church. You're going to get me knocked off. 
my point is that, that we have to understand what's happening. We have to make some real strides when it comes to reconciliation. We've got to take it out of the political agenda. We've got to make it a personal thing because when it becomes personal, that's when you're going to get the perspective. When you're around other people who you love and you care about, you're going to hear the other side of the story. Have you ever asked somebody who is on the other side, why they're on the other side. What is it? Did you know, and here's here's a myth, did you know that most white Christians assume that most black Christians who vote Democratic are for abortion? Do you know it's not true? It's not true? They read the same Bible as we read. They know what the Bible says about things of that nature. There's another reason why I'm going to talk about that in the future series. It has everything to do with social justice. Everything to do with social justice. See, I believe most black people have a great theology. And the great theology is they are for life from the womb to the tomb. And how many of you know, as Christians, we ought to be for life from the womb to the tomb. We're to protect the life of somebody being born. But once they're born, we need to protect that life all the way up until the time that they die. And so we need to ask these kind of questions and we need to be serious about these kind of things because this is the heart of God. And I want to challenge you as a church, as your pastor, to make reconciliation your thing.